the day before a festival is the perfect time to scout. That way you can see what birds are about. Thank you for turning into Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on different birding topics. We're definitely not experts in anything that we discuss that might be controversial. I want you to remember their own opinions and they might be different from yours. So back home in uh, 60 degree weather with overcast skies kind of <laughs> feels like the same way we left Texas. It's yeah, the, the weather the last couple of days of the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival this year was very, rem very Oregon reminiscent. I know. I feel bad for everyone down there. <laughs> I, I, I got a comment on one of my one of the photos that the festival reshared of me walking through the mud with um, the whole group behind me. And yeah. I'm all smiling like, ah, this is great. Um, somebody commented on it. Uh, I think it was one of the other Oregon birders, uh, Dave. He he commented on it and said, "This kind of looks like what you're going back home to, huh?" <laughs> Rude. Which which is true. Yeah. Those, those last couple of days were a little a little damp. Well, we won't talk about that quite no, yet. Not yet. No, that'll be that, that's that's to come. Yeah. So um, it is in the middle of November, and we're getting close to the Christmas bird count season. Oh my gosh, yeah. So if you are looking into joining a Christmas bird count, you might check the Audubon website where they list uh, all of the different um, uh, Christmas bird counts that have already been scheduled. Mm -hmm. You can see if there's any in your area to participate in. Oh yeah, there's hundreds, there's thousands of them across, yeah. across the U.S. and through uh, South and Central America. Mm -hmm. And I know I've received a couple emails from the coordinators of this in this area that I've participated in saying, hey, are you going to be involved this year? So they're they're actively looking for volunteers. Circles always almost always need more volunteers. There's a few circles that are pretty inundated, but most most every circle needs more volunteers for, to collect that data. And for the most part, um, there are some really, you know, there are some circles that are really limited in mm -hmm. the number of people to participate. When you did Tillamook, there was like, what, six people? participating yeah i think i think it was six people and then we had like three feeder watchers that were just watching from home and there's some places like houston which has a huge number of folks that participate yeah. the portland audubon has one um that's centered basically centered on the portland audubon location that is hundreds of people participated at least, at least the year prior to covid when i when i did that one there was hundreds of people and my section was our, our section that we did together yeah. was literally one trail <laughs> it was it was one trail it was a fairly long trail it was a long but trail. It, it was it was a line count with that within that trail because every almost every other trail in that park was taken and our whole sector it was split up it was narrowed all the way down not just wedges but sectors within wedges so so anyways my point yeah. in that was that um it's great for beginners don't feel intimidated if you know you're new to birding or you know you've never done a christmas bird count before usually folks are pretty open about having you help oh, yeah. especially some of those bigger count areas that can take more people um in groups versus mm -hmm. like tillamook which is so limited like you were on your own the whole day yeah but i i didn't have to be on my no, own like there, there was if i if i had told a coordinator hey i'm not familiar with this area i don't know the birds they would have partnered me with somebody and I would have just gone birding with this other person and we could have done a more thorough investigation of an area rather than dividing a little bit more and covering more ground. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just always shocked how many people say that a Christmas bird count is the way they got into birding. Yeah. Which is very cool. It, it is cool. So something else that's in the news. Yeah. So November 1st, um, I believe that's when the announcement came out. November 1st, um, the AOS, the American Ornithological Society, um, put out a statement saying that they are going to be they're, they're the they're the organization that's in charge essentially in charge within uh, within the Americas to um, name classify kind of keep the organization keep keep the overall list of birds in this whole region of the world 
And they announced that they're going to be re- prioritizing the renaming of birds that are named with eponyms, which are named that, which means that they're named after people. So things like Stellar's J, Townsend's Warbler, stuff like that that have an apostrophe S at the end. Um, changing those names away from named for people and and transition those to names that are more representative of the bird itself. So the the group that's been pushing this pretty pretty heavily for I think two years now, two-ish years is a organization that um, is called Bird Names for Birds. Um, so it's naming a bird for the bird rather than naming a bird for a person. It's got it's got enough uh, steam behind it. The AOS has made this declaration that this is this is how we're going to do it. I feel like I didn't see a, a ton of like real in-depth details of how the committees are going to get formed and stuff like that. But um, I believe within the next month or so, we should be hearing some more news on this. Um, and I actually had a pretty long discussion with um, John Dunn, who's on the North American, that's NACC, can't remember. The North American um, Classification, Classification Committee. Classification Committee, yeah. So um, he's, he's on that committee, uh, had a whole long conversation with him about, about this um, process that's going forward. And he gave me some insight about how the thick-billed longspur got renamed. And I, I thought it was interesting um, that there was a pretty heavy insistence that the thick-billed longspur be renamed to that for the fact that and a couple of the other suggested names only applied to some portions of the year and some portions, some, some plumages that didn't apply to all plumages, while thick-billed longspur applied to all plumages of all ages at all times of its life. The whole, the whole shebang. So it, it was something kind of interesting that the NACC made that, made that um, assertion that they really wanted to name it consistently for a bird that, that's going to apply its, its entire life. So thing, it didn't, they didn't want to name it... Um, uh, I can't remember what the other name was. Short, short grass longspur. Yeah, or something like that. I think that's what you'd said. Yeah, so it, that only applies for a small portion of its life while it's in its breeding habitat, and then the rest of its life it's not in a short grass prairie. So it's kind of, it, it was looking at a more broad about the bird itself. So it's not, uh, it's keeping consistent throughout the entire bird's life rather than. Well, just the breeding territory or just the wintering yeah, territory. Yeah, and throughout or... its entire range, too. Exactly, it's our entire range. Yeah, it's not necessarily fair to name it after something that's like only in the United States of America mm-hmm. when that species occurs in a number of other places, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm glad that they they have that naming um, uh, classification that they do, and, mm-hmm. or that, that ruling, um, which occurred... Before this uh, declaration from yeah, the so so that, that's when when they did the um, change in the, it it was a McCowan's longspur mm-hmm. and now it's um, now thick it's thick billed longspur so it's it's kind of um, I'm hoping that they kind of go with that sort of thought process in mind um, of the name needs to represent the bird throughout its the entire range of this species and throughout all ages and behavior and all that stuff so it's not uh, kind of not not naming it after something else again so not naming it after a tree because it breeds in this specific type of tree or not naming it after a specific habitat it breeds in or winters in one one way or the other so i'm interested i'm, I'm interested in seeing how this how this develops 2024 i think january 2024 is when they're supposed to get start starting to kick off and start assembling these committees so i'm interested to see how that goes and watch that process as it develops and will the general public have the opportunity are you aware if the general public will have the opportunity to pitch names as well or is it just like the committees that are doing that i I think they will so in in the past um it's always been a full public process that you can submit a proposal and send that proposal into the to the nacc to then be considered for whatever taxonomic changes um are you want you would like to see Mm -hmm. happen and then you provide all of your evidence and all that stuff so I'm hoping that public that process remains just as public, or even more so, and a more bigger push for submit your submit your 
rationales and your names and your reasons or, or whatever it is that they are looking for. So I know they mentioned public process multiple times throughout their, throughout their, uh, what is it called? Press release? Yes. Mm-hmm. Press release is the word. Um, throughout the press release. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that kind of all comes together and we can have a, a, va- a wide public process that's, that since, since we're all going to have to live with these names for, for who knows how long, because we're going to be printing new field guides. I'm glad to hear that they will hopefully be involving the public pretty heavily because mm-hmm. not all uh, birders are researchers or scientists or whatever the case could be. Some of them could be like you and me that don't work in the field and go out and enjoy birds um, on their, their free time. Recreationally. Or, yeah. and Recreational I, birders. I was going to say that I think most birders are probably recreationists. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll post uh, the announcement in the show notes if you want to read more about that. Um, Feel free to check that out. So another thing I wanted to mention is that the Uganda Women Birders Conference, which you've heard me mention for months and months and months, uh, will be occurring uh, December 6th through the 8th. Unfortunately, I won't be able to attend that, um, that meeting. There were a number of different factors that made our decision not to travel to Uganda. There's newly passed discriminatory legislation that's come through. There's been, um, you know, public safety hazards that have occurred recently. Uh, I was looking at the U.S. travel website the other day, and it was posted as a level four do not travel. It's been downgraded to a level three reconsider travel. And, um, yeah, just to say that it's hugely disappointing that we won't be able to go and I do want to say that I have so much respect for the women birders that work in Uganda and work to promote women birding. Um, Herbert Birhanga is, is a great friend of ours, and he's you know created all these opportunities for women in Uganda to to have jobs and to you know have livelihoods. And I I really love being a part of that in what minor way I can be. Um, I'm disappointed that I can't get there to support them, but. As you can imagine, this is a really hard situation at this time. Although we won't be going, we do have some stuff that we've purchased in advance uh, to provide to the women birders. I mean, mm-hmm. small stuff like laser pointers and and field guides and you know like clothes and things like that that we we're hoping to take over with us. Um, we'll be sending that along with some folks that we do know are attending the conference, and um, we hope in the, you know I, I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this thing and. And I'm glad to see that there will be a number of African women who will be attending. So I hope in the future, you know, I'll be able to participate again in the the future Women Birders Conference, wherever that may be, um, because I really want to get together with other women birders and, you know, celebrate birding together with you all. So on a happier note... Uh, we yeah. we want to uh, thank some folks for buying us coffee. Uh, if you would like to support our podcast, there is a link in our show notes to buy us coffees. Um, and we appreciate everyone who's done that. Um, Even the anonymous listener that <laughs> did not put their name on it. Yeah, so you we, know who you are. Yes, you know who you are. And thank you for thank you for supporting our podcast. Yeah, we appreciate it. And, you know, to everyone for listening, we always appreciate a listen as well. Yeah. A listen is the most important Okay, so our Berta bird fact of the day today is about barn owls. Yeah. So they're, 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 on, they're on pretty much every continent of the world except for Antarctica. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't go a lot through northern Asia and stuff, but through, through southern Asia. So that's, that's every continent. 
Yeah, um, technically. Technically, every continent, um, uh, aside from Antarctica. So they're everywhere. Very widespread. So you, you can see them everywhere you go. But they have some really interesting things, including, including that they will use their regurgitated pellets, which... This is going to sound disgusting, but <laughs> they use their regurgitated pellets where, so owls in general, they eat, eat up all sorts of stuff, including the fur and bones of their little rodent friends that they're having for dinner. I don't know if they're friends at that point. Well, they're, they have them over for a dinner party and, <laughs> and then owling ensues. Um, but they'll regurgitate their pellets and then break those up and use, bar, barn owls will, and break, break those pellets up and use that pellet the fur and stuff that's left over in that as lining for their nests. I feel like that's like a double whammy against these, uh, these no, rodent just, friends that came over. It's like a holistic use of that, that thing. Yeah, nothing goes to waste. M- most other birds just cough it up and then you They're find it on the forest floor and then kids dissect it. Yeah, that's true. You're not going to do a lot of dissecting of barn owl pellets, I guess. Um, I mean, <laughs> possibly, yeah. I, I gotta give they, it to you. They're, they're dissecting their own pellets to their nest with i gotta give it to you that was that's a good fact that's very interesting <laughs> so as eric mentioned you can see barn owls on almost every continent except for antarctica and they have been seen a lot on berta and we've seen them in a couple of locations around the u.s it's not super frequent that we see a barn owl but it's always very cool when we do yes it is so there's actually something, a really cool feature on Berta that mm-hmm. they have a, a nearby feed that you can go in there and you can see what other uh, birds people are seeing around you. So check out that feed and see if you can find a barn owl near you soon. Yeah. And Berta is a free app that you can download on any service and it's uh, really cool to use it as social media for birds as well as listing your birds that you see. Yes, it is. So Hannah has two other podcasts um, released in between our episodes here, uh, Women Birders Happy Hour and Bird Nerd Book Club. You've got a couple episodes coming out. So one that just came out was Bird Nerd Book Club mm-hmm. last week. Who'd you have on that? So I had Find More Birds with Heather Wolf, and that right. came out November 9th, as you mentioned. Um, it has just 111 different ways to help you find birds. <laughs> and one of the things that somebody emailed me about was that there's a lot of things in in the book that you read that you probably already know, like how to find birds in that particular way. Yeah. But the fact that she lists it out is so beneficial because it's things that I wouldn't have necessarily told somebody. Like I wouldn't have been able to verbalize. So I think that is just such a great tool to help people find more birds. Yeah. And then next week you've got another one, Women Birds Happy Hour. Yes. And I'll have our friend Allison Anholt oh, on that episode. So yeah, I'm looking forward to talking with her soon. I don't have a bird yet for it because I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I'm sure it'll be oh, good. It's a surprise. It's a mystery bird. Yes. Uh, so that brings us to where we're going next. So we are in a couple of weeks. We're headed to the Gambia and Senegal in Western Africa. We'll be there for two weeks about. Um, I think two weeks in country and then it's a lot of travel time to yeah. get there and back. Um, and then San Diego Bird Festival at the end of February. Very excited about San Diego Bird Festival. Yeah, and registration just opened for that soon. So yes, or recently. <laughs> Recent. It previously soon opened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, registration's open. You can get in there, register. We're doing birding by bike. Uh, we're also giving a presentation about um, your next birding festival. So you and keep... we're also doing a, uh, a a fun party. Yes, a fun party. I don't know if it says fun party on the registration for that, but. <laughs> But it is. Well, I can't remember what it's called. I can't remember what it's called either. But it's it's fun. It's a great thank you dinner um, that they that 
is in, in lieu of a keynote on one of the nights. So register for everything, that including out. that, because that, that, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and then Spring Chirp at the end of April, um, back down to the Rio Grande Valley, where we just got back from. Super excited about getting down in the spring to the Rio Grande Valley. And then in September, you can join me for the Amazon Burning Expedition Brazil for Women, if you would like. And that is in September 2024. We'll post the link to that in the show notes if you want to join me. Awesome. So we have one last pitch for our November Bird Nerd giveaway. This one's kind of extended. It's an extended one but just because of the way the months land or the weeks land in the month. Um, you have an extra two weeks to register. So November 28th is the deadline. You will win some laminated bird cards, an owl figurine called an alabrije. Um, from Oaxaca, we bought, we bought this little owl um, that's to represent knowledge and justice. And the laminated bird cards so what you have to do by november 28th is send us your favorite endemic species and when we initially wrote it last episode we forgot to say bird species so it's any species um it's any it could be a plant an insect whatever it is your favorite endemic species anywhere around the world that you just love so november 28th let us know okay so you know one of the questions that we get asked pretty frequently is like how do you travel all the time? <laughs> um, Good question. Which is so funny to me because we have a number of friends that are guides for different companies mm -hmm. and they are literally traveling all the time. They, like, I mean, some of our friends go to, I don't know, 10, 15 countries a year. Oh, yeah. Guiding. Well, and I, we, we have a guide friend right now that he is on his, I think he's, he just posted it today. It's on, he's on his 17th week straight in Africa. Um... And he's just traveling around Africa. He's had nine nine field trips that he's led since he's been over in Africa, ranging from South Africa all the way up through the southwestern coast of Africa. So he's he's been over there a while, and he's yeah. just traveling and birding and guiding. So we, we have friends that travel a lot more than we travel, but well, we still get that question. Well, yeah, no, needless to say... Um, I just want to mention real quick that we don't travel for a job. We don't make money off this podcast in a way that we can support ourselves. And that was never the intent of it. Yes. We want to share the love birding of, with others. And so that's why we did it. Um, but we just, what we do in our day job, we own and operate a hotel in, mm -hmm. on the Oregon coast in Cannon Beach, Oregon. Um, I'm third generation hotelier. And so that is... What we do, I always say like 90% of our life is doing the hotel. Yeah, it's it's, pro it's probably 80% of our life. Okay. I don't know. Splitting hairs. Well, anyways. So, yeah, we don't have any staff here at the hotel. And when I'm not here, then my mom or my sister is filling in for me. So, it's, it's a lot of work. We are working 24-7 for sometimes weeks at a time without any weekends. So we don't take any weekends because we pile all those up and then we go on a trip somewhere mm -hmm. um, rather than having my mom come down every, you know, five days to cover us for two days to yeah. have a weekend. So um, that's how we can travel periodically. And, you know, we love being here and running, running a hotel is a good time for it, the it most is part. So much work, but also it's so rewarding, especially because here in, here in Cannon Beach where we're at, Everyone who comes here is on vacation. 99% mm -hmm. of people are on vacation. They're not coming for work or anything like that. So sometimes they're cranky when they get here because they're road weary. But generally, day two, or sometimes right when they check in, 
they're amazed to be in Cannon Beach, and they're like, "Oh, this is amazing!" It's so so happy. So it it revitalizes us to the to the town and what where we live on a regular basis that we can try to experience that vacation with them and be excited for them to be here and all that. So it can be very re- rewarding to be able to deliver that to people, be, be here to be the representatives of this beautiful place that we live. But also it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get, get, getting a call at two in the morning for my, my toilet's not working right. Or just, just the constant can yeah. be constant on call can be, can be a little taxing, but it's, it's a, it's a flip side. You, you get both, both aspects. Yeah. And like I said, we get asked that question all the time. So there's your answer. Yes. That's, that's how we travel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the events that we look forward to most every year is every the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. Yes. And this year it was the 30th anniversary of it. And it did not dis- disappoint. No, not it, at all. It was, you had every possible thing. You had 90 degree weather. You had 40 degree weather. <laughs> you had it all. Actually, I think it only got down to 60. It didn't really get that cold. But it rained like a torrential downpour. We, we had them both. We had hot. We had rain. Everything you could experience in the valley. And lots of birds. So we actually had a great flight to Harlingen this time. Very rarely from Portland can you get a flight that's like, that actually works out it to be take reasonable. all day. Yeah. So it was early. We left at... 5.30. Yeah. 5.30 was the flight. So it was, it was an early flight. Flew but to Dallas and then we got into Harlingen at about 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. In the... Daytime. The key word is afternoon, and it was still daylight. That's that's the the key important aspect here. And so it's always land at midnight, land at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, and yeah. then you get delays, and you're still there at midnight. Yeah. But it was great. We landed in the afternoon. We still had time to do stuff. We grabbed a van, which, as part of the responsibility of the guides um, for the festival, is that you grab a van to deliver it. But in the meantime, before the festival starts, we get the opportunity to use this van as a as a rental car. We just have to reimburse all the all the fuel back into it, so we're not taken from the festival. So we use it to chase. Yeah. So Sc- scout slash chase. Well, yeah. So <laughs> there had been an American flamingo at Laguna Atascosa over Osprey Overlook, and we wanted to go make sure it was there. Yeah. You know? Just it's a, it's a scouting mission for the festival to make sure that the American Flamingo is still at Laguna Atascosa. Well, and honestly, Laguna Atascosa is one of my favorite places. And we weren't slated to go there during the festival. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, have a little time there because it's it's amazing. It's It was established in 1946. So it's a fairly old one. And it provides wintering uh, waterfowl, mostly redheads, with habitat for the winter season. Mm-hmm. Um, and today they focus on conservation and management for shorebirds, but also ocelots. That's one of the last strong, well, stronghold is a strong word. Stronghold is a very strong word yeah. for what's going on with ocelots. But it's one of the last remaining places in the United States where ocelots occur. Yeah. And they did have a flamingo years ago, but you had to hike in like five miles to get there, which, you know, I don't have a problem hiking in like five miles, mm-hmm. but in 90 degree weather, that's not, you know, the healthiest thing to do. And they yeah. also recommended that you take a mountain bike into it. Because because of, it's five miles. Yeah, it's a yeah. long way to go. Just grab a bike. Yeah, but because of the terrain and the surrounding vegetation, you will likely get a flat tire on the bike. Yeah, riding a bike in the Rio Grande Valley is an Taking at, your, a risk. at your own risk situation. Um, always bring spare inner tubes or everything else because it's... The habitat type is referred to as thorn scrub. Yeah. It's referred to as thorn scrub for a reason. Well, everything it, has thorns. Cactus, mesquite, ebony's. Everything has mes- everything has thorns. You know how they always say like everything in Australia is like trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Like 
honestly, I kind of feel like in the Rio Grande Valley, everything in Rio Grande Valley is trying to poke you. Trying to poke you. Yeah. yeah. It's not trying to kill you. Very, very little stuff of the stuff is that dangerous. Yeah. Just very pokey. Yeah. Everything is pokey. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's a huge refuge. Um, they have over 60 miles of trails, which yeah. is incredible. Get your, get your workout in. Yeah. A uh, 3,500 acre freshwater lake and five bird feeding stations around the visitor center. There are so many things to do there. I haven't seen hardly any of it. I feel like there's um, a driving loop that they used to have mm -hmm. that I don't think is still accessible anymore. I think it's been closed since... Um, they've been more of a focus on ocelots. Yeah. It's been closed since that focus has shifted, I believe. Well, anyways, I'm disappointed that we never had the opportunity to go on it. But it oh, is... Maybe maybe some, maybe some they'll reopen. They'll get some more staffing and they can reopen that Maybe, someday. maybe. But it's, it's an incredible place that I encourage everyone to go to if you are visiting the Rio Grande Valley. It's on the land side of the Laguna Madre. Mm -hmm. And then there is Barrier Island, which is South Padre Island, just off of that. So that's kind of how that's all oriented. And one of the best spots to bird is along the entrance road in. So it's it's really slow driving. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like 25 miles an hour, and there's a lot of speed bumps. So it used to be a really terrible road. It used to be just a caliche, not very well improved road. Yeah. They improved it and then realized everyone's driving at 70 miles an hour or whatever down because this road. Because it's a long road. It's a very long, perfectly straight road. So then they aftermarket installed a bunch of speed bumps and the speed limit is 25 i believe yeah that's what i want to say i think it's 25 um so it's very it's very slow for the design of the road because roads a lot of times are designed if it's wider it's more comfortable drive fast you feel like you can see more but because of the it's sensitive ha um, ocelot habitat they want you to drive very slow so to reduce the risk of an ocelot getting hit. And so they put in all these speed bumps. It's like every 500 feet, there's another speed bump. Not so that I have a problem no, with any of that at all. absolutely want to drive slow. But yeah, definitely. And that's what makes it one of the best birding spots is that drive-in. So we had a white-tailed hawk, mm -hmm. like first off the bat. Um, there was Harris's hawk, crested caracara. Um, there, we saw an armadillo that mm -hmm. at first I thought was a tortoise because of the way it was hiding in the, the tall grass, but that was very cool. And then we saw, I'm going to go ahead and say the world's fastest indigo snake because it was <laughs> a huge indigo snake. Oh, it, it was a full adult. It was probably six or seven feet. It was, it was a, it was a big one. Yeah. And which it, was honestly my first indigo snake I've ever seen. We lived in the Valley for two years. We come back to the Rio Grande Valley Festival. This is our eighth year, I think, guiding Hannah's ninth year. And I've never seen an indigo snake. And I was so excited to see this. And it was, it it, was, it did not disappoint. It was a beast. It was huge. It was a large indigo snake. And indigo snakes, they're gorgeous. And the thing that everybody knows about them is that they eat rattlesnakes. Yeah. And so. And they're non-venomous. Yeah. So folks like to have them around. I mean, they're fairly friendly snakes. P people that don't like snakes still don't like them. But, sure. um, but they are, they're so cool. Yeah. Super cool snake. Um zero danger to any person that wants to be around them um as long as you don't grab them and harass them and try to make them bite you because they'll still bite they're still a snake but well, they yeah. just don't have any venom yeah so it's all it's all good super cool snake though dark deep purple gorgeous so we got out to the osprey overlook and it was loaded with birds and we've been out there before where we just got like skunked and there wasn't a whole lot we've been out there where there's i don't know ten thousand redheads before mm -hmm. but that day that we got there it was like absolute perfect because there was a ton of birds but it was like huge variety of birds too oh yeah um, the, it, it wasn't it wasn't a monoculture of redheads out yeah. there or a monoculture of coots out there it was it was a lot of stuff which 
did make it a little uh, hard to find the flamingo <laughs> because <laughs> there was like so many other things to look for. Uh, fortunately, it was like directly out from the overlook. It was backlit, so we didn't get like a great look at it or a good initially picture. it was very backlit, and then because as the sun was going down, as the sun was going down. But once the sun like hit it, and we actually had some sunset. The, the lighting became better, surprisingly, even though the lighting was getting less. It seemed less backlit once the sun was that far down. But so, great bird. Pretty good looks at it, just yeah. sitting out there. There are there are a number of other ones. I think there's three flamingos have been seen out there. That's what I heard the but, high count was. But we only saw one the day we were out there. And, you know, I just, I like, we've seen flamingos before. But I just never realized how iconic the, like, silhouette is. And how... Oh, you're not confusing that for anything else. No, exactly. That was the thing. Because I was like... I Like, I know what a flamingo looks like. And there were a lot of herons out there, too. Mm -hmm. And I was, like, looking through the scope, you know, trying to, like, pick out the the flamingo. And, like, it had its face tucked into mm -hmm. its its uh, chest when it was standing there. But even just, like, looking at it standing with its head tucked in, like, it's so obvious it's, that it's, it's a flamingo. Its body shape is... Yeah, it's it's like a ball yeah. on, on legs. So it's definitely, even with its head completely tucked and you can't see the head and neck at all, it still has a distinctive body. Yeah. That's different, very different from all the other herons and egrets out there. Which really helped with like, you know, my, my normal imposter syndrome that I like found it. And I was like, hmm, could this be something else? This has got to be a horse. It can't be a zebra. And then I was looking at it. I was like, no, this is obviously a flamingo. Yeah. Uh, so besides that, we had, 15, you know, approximately 1,500 redhead, 900 pin, uh, northern pintails, about 3,000 American coots, American white pelicans, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And we had Including two... great horned owls. I was going to say two calling great horned owls yeah. just off in the thorn scrub next to us. So it was a gorgeous sunset, you know, so mm -hmm. romantic so and lovely. Romantic. Flamingo. <laughs> and yeah, I just really am so glad that we went out there, raced yeah. out there. Yeah, so then as, as the light was fading, we were like, well, it's not going to be much birding left. Uh, we did have a uh, long-billed thrasher that was uh, mewing to kind of announce that the day was over and it was time for us to take our leave and go find dinner. Honestly, I really love that sound. The, yeah. Meow. Meow. Yeah, yeah, just walking around like at dusk. Meow. <laughs> it's not the prettiest sound. It's just, it's, it's like, com one. it's comforting. Yeah, well, it's like, it's letting you know that mm, you've had your time out here. <laughs> Go, go home. Go to bed. <laughs> so we got back on Granted, the road. it was only 6 o'clock. That's true. <laughs> yeah, because it was right after Daylight Savings. Yeah. Um, we got it, or whatever. Yeah, the, the change of the clocks, whichever way we went. The time change. Uh, we got back on the road and headed to Harlingen, which is where the festival takes place. Mm -hmm. It's about, I don't know, in the middle of the valley is what I always think of, which is not exactly true because, you know, it's an hour out to the coast from there, and then it's two and a half hours. Like, inland is where the boundary of the festival takes place yeah so it's not exactly the middle it's, but it's the middle of where most of the birding takes place yeah between mcallen and the, and the coast yeah and we stopped at one of our favorite restaurants there which is called la playa mm -hmm. that we always make a you know we can make, a, make a point to go there at least once yeah every time we go down um i i gotta tell you if you go there i got the most amazing fajita you've never gotten a fajita before either no because i was like i'm gonna treat myself <laughs> <laughs> which is only like Three dollars more than any other dish. Yeah, it's not really that that expensive. It was uh, it's called uh, fajita tarascas. Yeah, and I got a steak one. It had this like chili poblano like cream sauce that I'm gonna dream about for a while. 
I got something that was like a fajita, but it wasn't a fajita. I don't know. It was it was meat, beans, and rice on, yeah. with tortillas. It was good. It was really good. I, I mean, was... all all of all of their food is good. I feel like you can't go wrong. They they have a stuffed avocado that you can oh, like a, a deep fried stuffed avocado. They have burritos. They have fajitas. They have a um, they have a botana platter, which is a pretty significantly sized botana platter. Yeah. Um, it's like a sampler platter that has lots of other stuff too. Um, they have a molcajete. They have they have all sorts of stuff. That's I haven't had anything bad there yet. Yeah. Well, I was happy with my steak. I got a dos equis rest. Um, yeah. Which means that it has like salt around the edge of it and a lime, mm-hmm. uh, which is like just perfect to cap yeah. that end of that day. See, I, I I would prefer to have the tahini than the salt. I just don't like tahini. I, I love tahini. So, anyways, um, anyways, got back to our hotel. They had renovated it since the last time we were mm-hmm. there, the Best Western. So it was like fantastic, beautiful. And then we got up the next day at sunrise, or as close to sunrise as we can get. As we dared. Yeah, and uh, headed down to Sable Palm. Yeah, we wanted to scout Sable Palm, because Sable Palm is, was on our list of one of the places we were going to be guiding at, and it's been two years, I think, yeah, we've, since we've been to Sable Palm. We've so only we, been there a handful of times. We wanted to make sure that we knew the trails, and the, the birds, we were, we, they're all is very similar species, but knowing the trails and knowing so that we don't end up... End up going down a dead end on accident or something like that was is important. Uh, so we wanted to make sure we got all that down pat and we're good to go. Um, so we headed down there and immediately after getting out of the car or out of the van that we were driving, it a Chihuahuan Raven flew over, yeah. which is not that common at Sable Palm, but not that far up the road is the Brownsville Dump. And that's, you can get Chihuahuan Ravens pretty regularly there. I always feel like on Highway 100, I, I like out like... to South Padre Island, you see them periodically on yeah. the, the power poles. I, I, I agree, yeah. They definitely see them out that way. But for some reason, it's, I, I tried to look and there's not a ton of reports of them at Sable Palm yeah. um, Sanctuary, which is an Audubon. It's it's an Audubon-owned site. So like the lo- down there, there's um, there's an Audubon uh, chapter of the Audubon Society that's down there, and they own this property. The as, Royal as Colorado Audubon Society. Yeah, Royal uh, Royal Colorado Audubon Society. Um, they they own this location, so it's it's an Audubon sanctuary that's fantastic. It's the biggest, most intact sable palm forest that's left in the country. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. It's, I don't know if it's, it's definitely not the world. There's gotta be other, I don't, maybe it is the world. I don't know, but it's, it's a very large sable palm stand that is native, um, sable palms. Most of the palms that you see planted down in that area are an, are an invasive, uh, Washingtonia date palm, which is slightly different. Can sometimes if you're, if you're young or if the tree is young, you can kind of confuse. If you're young, if you're young, you confuse. No, if the tree's young, you can confuse them for sable palms, but they are rather distinctive and they provide so much habitat for the native wild wildlife down there. And so this for this is a forest of sable palms. And the, the sanctuary has this beautiful old house. That's Mm -hmm. where their, their headquarters is. Yeah. But there's also apparently an Airbnb on the second floor. I did not realize that. Oh, somebody was telling me about it, that they went there and Javi was standing out, out (laughs) up there and he was staying in the Airbnb. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea. Uh, that's my understanding at least at at one point in time. (laughs) Um, but it's, yeah, it's a great site and, uh, there's a overlook of the river. Mm -hmm. So we went and checked out the river and tons of vultures hanging out in the trees. Like if you're the first person there, you will flush all the vultures, um, black and turkey vultures hanging out. And And always keep your eyes open for hook-billed kite and zone-tailed hawk, which both of which are very dark and both of which can often 
hide within a flock of all these vultures. So very, very cool park. And when you're on your way in, don't be afraid. Um, you will go over the levee, and which includes the border wall, um, the newly constructed border wall, or the newly that renovated. That while. one's been there for a while, but it looks like it's been renovated. Like they've done some additions to it. But anyways, you'll you'll pass through a section of the border wall, and you are not leaving the states. You are just crossing the border wall, and the entire sanctuary falls on the south side of the border wall. So it was very dry when we were there, mm-hmm. and there was hardly any water in any of the the normally wet areas. Yeah. So that was um, that was really telling because you know we've heard for years and years and years that like they're in a drought, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But the amount of like dry areas that we saw this year, the normally wet, was just kind of shocking. Yeah, to shocking. Me. And you know we still did get like pie build grebe. Um, the feeding station was full of white tip dove. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had two olive sparrows, one at that feeding station, and then just tons of green jays too. So oh, yeah. yeah, that was super busy. We had, Valley specialty birds. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> lots of golden fronted woodpeckers. Uh, one of my favorite things was that there was all all these piles of nilgai droppings, mm-hmm. and nilgai are an invasive. Um, well, a non-native deer, an exotic deer that was brought in for hunting purposes because Texas has all these like ranches that they brought in exotic animals for hunting. And some of them escaped or were released when the, you know, branches went into disrepair or whatever the case is. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, there's Neil Guy throughout South Texas. And they're large forced deer. And they're probably about the same size as our Roosevelt elk. Yes, they've got to be somewhere somewhere around that size. They're very large. Um, and Nilgai, is, I think it's Hindi, um, means uh, blue cow. That's what somebody had told you on our trip. Yeah, that's our trip. someone told me on, the, on our trip. And I feel like I had already heard that in the past, that that's where the name comes from. But yeah, it's the, the males have a, a blue tinge to them like, and one of during, my... during breeding season, during rut or whatever whatever you call deer breeding season. And one of my very favorite facts about them is that they are a communal defecator. Yes, they and are. And so you, <laughs> these groups moving around, they will have one area where they all defecate in. So that's yes. what happened a, to be along a lot of the trails at St. Wilhelm. A pile of Nilgai droppings. And it's a very obvious, prominent pile. So there's there's a couple piles like that around. But, they're, but they are very particular. They only go in their communal spot. Yeah. Fascinating yes. to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we got a lot of those valley specialties, and mm-hmm. then uh, we decided to go up the road to Resaca de la Palma State Park. Not that far away. It's 15, 20 minutes, in, something like that. In search of a blue bunting that had been seen there, and that would have been a lifer for us. It would have been, yes. Unfortunately, got there, tried, dipped. Um, there was also a butterfly festival happening at the same time. It always happens the weekend before the mm-hmm. Rio Grande Valley Burning Festival. Um, so there were a lot of butterfly watchers there, which I always get a kick out of because I don't know that many butterfly names and they're like shouting out names oh like we probably do with birds. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's interesting seeing like, I'm, cause we don't, we don't, we don't really get into butterflies. Like I know here. a handful of butterflies. Yeah. Yeah, there's 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 a handful you kind of generally, and you recognize when they're talking about butterflies that that's sure. they're shooting they're shooting those names out there. But like listening to them, just like boom, 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 rattle them off, and then when they'll say another name that to me, honestly, as a non lepidopter, um, non butterfly watcher, yeah, 
I hear three names in a row, and I'm like, okay, well, whatever, that's three names. But then somebody gets so excited about that fourth name that pops out, and to me, it's just four names. And it's it's like, exactly how birders sound, it's exactly, non-birders. Exactly, exactly how non-birders um, listen to birders talk. So, so you, it's, you it's come, very exciting. You come down, go to this festival, get a taste of your own medicine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating because they all take off running just like a birder would do. I know. Like if somebody, like if you were with non-birders and you said there's a blue bunting, the non-birders would be like, huh. But then all the birders t- literally take off in a, in a sprint yeah. and, and take off down the trail with their cameras flapping in the wind trying to get down to see this bird. And then... The butterflies are probably standing around like, why are they so excited? It's just blue. We have a lot, we have a Mexican blue. Like, whatever. We have lots of blue things. Lots of blue butterflies. Yeah. But no. So anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah, we tried for a little bit. Dipped on it, like I mentioned. Had, mm-hmm. But, you know, had ladderback, woodpecker, green jays, blue-gray gnatcatchers. Yeah. Never get tired of seeing those things. Absolutely. So then from from there, we, we were like, oh, it's, start, it's starting to get a little warm. We had a, we wanted to meet with... Uh, um, Holly, who runs the Valley Nature Center up in Westlaco, um, kind of talked to her about spring chirp, which which is coming up in a couple of months. Talked to her a little bit about that. Um, also talked to her about uh, Brew in the Woods, which um, is gets held, I think it's always during the Rio Grande Valley Festival. Yeah, I think it's always that Saturday. Um, it's their biggest fundraiser of the year. Um, we were hoping to go, um, but we, we ended up getting so busy we just couldn't couldn't make it. But it is a really fun fundraiser. We did go last year. It was a great time. Oh, yeah. Fantastic food. Beer, drinks. food. In, in an outdoor setting out there with at, at, at the Valley Nature Center, mm-hmm. it's Holly always throws a fantastic party, yeah, um, which is essentially what it is. It's a fundraiser party. It's it's a it's a great time, but we we headed up there. We we met with her for for a little bit, and then we got a few minutes to go outside and bird. In it like I think this is like two o'clock in the afternoon. So yeah, it's 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 getting hot, um, but we still even though it's hot. Great birds still, chachalaca, white tip does, green jays, clay colored thrush. Um, there was a ladderback woodpecker, I think, calling. So it's great, great birds for the middle of the afternoon. So the second to last stop of the day in <laughs> we, our we had a very full day that day. <laughs> we, we, did. we took advantage of every minute of daylight we could. <laughs> we headed to Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge, which is one of my other favorite refuges. Uh, and you I have lots to... of favorite refuges. I do. Every, I like... every refuge is your favorite refuge. Okay. Well, sorry. It's so, true. It's true. Sorry that I like things. Yeah, it's good. Um, and it, yeah, I wanted to take Eric on the tram tour because he'd never been before. So the Friends nope. of Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge have a tram tour that you can take. It's like three times a day during this season. Mm-hmm. Um, it's seven miles long. It's an hour and a half. And there is um, a volunteer that narrates along the way. So you get to learn a lot about the refuge. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple stops that you can go to. One of them is this um, this cemetery that's in the middle of it. And I think it's just so amazing how big that refuge is. That How many times have you been there? Did you know there was a cemetery? I didn't know there was a cemetery back yeah. there. Yeah, it's it's a really, it's a long, it's seven mile long. I've I've been to some of the lakes. I've been walked through the forest. I've walked through I felt like up the tower. Up the tower. I felt like I had gone to most of the refuge, and I was like, "Oh, there's not much." Left. And then we go on this tram tour, and it's like, "These are sections of the, of the refuge I've never seen. Yeah. I had no idea this whole his whole big stretch in the back existed." I know. And so I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I've been missing out that there's all of this other ref, part of the refuge that, and, and including a, a Rosaka that I didn't know was back there." I know. It's like there's all this extra stuff. Like I could I could have been exploring more of this refuge, but I didn't know. Yeah, see, we need to we need to get some bikes with like rubber tires or like solid tires. Yeah, yeah. some solid tires and go explore these places better. I know, seriously. 
But we, we had a great time on the tour, though we didn't see very many birds. Um, it was later in the afternoon. It was later in the afternoon. We did, have, we did have Kestrel. We had a red-shouldered hawk. We had... The tram was very loud. The tram is very loud. It's it's very rattly. And so you really only get some birds when you're sitting still or if they're hawks that you see at a distance. Um, not a lot of birds are going to get close to the tram. Um, but it was really fascinating to hear about the, a little bit of the history of the, of the refuge and then also um, see these sections of the refuge that we weren't even aware that existed. So... It's definitely worth worth doing the tram ride so you can get a feel of the whole place, how large the refuge is, and then go out and there's some trails that'll take you out to most of that stuff anyways. Yeah, and it was cool because the folks that were also on the the tour, um, there were some like winter Texans mm-hmm. that were down and a number of residents, yeah, there's like some residents locals that... that participated too. So it's cool to see you know, the diversity of folks that are going to these yeah. places. It's not just birders, because we always get the impression, like, only birders go here. But... Yeah, a lot of the impression that we get while we're down in the Rio Grande Valley is it's just visitors that are going to these locations. But uh, I'm, I'm always I'm always shocked, and I shouldn't be shocked, but I'm always shocked that a lot of locals are going to these spots too, which which is great yeah. that for a place that um, has typically in the past catered to getting the winter Texans and the visitors to come to them, they are being, they are successfully reaching out to the communities that they reside within and getting the community come out and, and experience it as, as it should be. Totally. It's a great balance. Yeah. So we finished off the day by going to, and I'm going to say it again, one of my favorite state parks, which is... Wait, which one is this? <laughs> it's a Stereonic Grande oh, State all right, Park. All right. Um, it it's, was it's your favorite state park in Westlaco, right? Yeah, it is. All right. And it was on the way back from Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge to Harlingen. And we had already paid for Resaca de La Palma State Park. So we were like, you know, we don't have to pay because well, we already went in. We already so. paid. It's on the way. Exactly. You can't not stop. Exactly. You and have to stop. See, that's one of the beauties of Texas state parks is that when you pay at one place, then you can get into all the other parks for yeah, the day. The rest of the day. The rest also, of the day is free entry to all other state parks. Also, you know, I kind of felt like getting a state park pass, even though we're we're not there. I felt like we can make it worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, it's birding is always good there, and that's one of the reasons I love it. It's not a huge state park. It's like 230 acres or so, but it is a beautiful place, and there's always something good. Yeah. We did mention about how there's low water, and the pond in front, well, the lake pond whatever in front of the covered deck was completely dry and full of grass which is something i've never seen before yeah it's i think um the superintendent mentioned that it's the first time it's been dry since it was um built really i I think that's was in his post that they've always had some sort of water in it um even when even when they're in the biggest of the drought recently um a couple of years ago they still had just a little bit of water but now there's no water and it has to it has to do with a couple of things. The drought, for one. Sure. And then um, they, they're having issues with their pump. So okay. it's kind of a combination of things that they weren't able to keep it at least that minimum. So it's it, it, it's surviving just as well as all natural bodies of water are right now down in the valley of being dry. Well, hopefully they get more water soon. Yes. So Astero has had limpkins recently. And that's part of a huge push of limpkins popping up throughout the eastern U.S., um, if you've been paying attention to like rare bird reports or any of that, you'll see that in the past like two or three years, limpkins have just had this massive uh, movement like mm-hmm. east or I'm sorry, west and north. And they are just popping up all over the place. So I'm waiting for one to show up in Oregon. That would 
I mean, they finally made it, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know that that's going to happen because I don't think we have an apple snail invasion here in Oregon. They, they've, got to be eat, they've got to be eating stuff other than just apple well, snails. Well, somebody said freshwater mussels. Freshwater mussels have been documented as being eaten. So yeah. they're, they're, they're working their way across the country. I think they're going to adapt. They... They're they're not they're not shy. They're it's not just, shy birds. It's so wild that you know we chased our first one. And we had to chase it like across Florida, yeah. and then only a couple years later they were like much it, more common in Florida. Yeah, our our yeah our first sighting it was still relatively hard to get a reliable limpkin sighting. Yeah, and then now it's you, you pretty much are guaranteed a sighting if you go anywhere in Florida with water, and now it's spreading to the point where. You have a chance if you're in the eastern half of the U.S. of seeing it if you go to a water body of water. Yeah, it's just very very widespread now, or becoming widespread. Yeah, and, and, and singles and pairs and stuff, but becoming wide, more widespread. So the ones that were being seen at Estero were from the levee that overlooks mm-hmm. the canal. So we headed up there first. Gale force winds up there, <laughs> like it, we, we almost lost your scope. It, it was a yeah. whole. It was it was a whole. It was a scene to behold. Yeah. And we didn't look for too long, but we dipped on the Lincoln, Lipkin that day. Yeah, it's not a lifer. It was like, okay, well, we're, and, and we had a, we already had a planned day that we were guiding at Astero. So yeah. we're like, well, we'll be back later this week. Yeah. So it we'll look harder then. a huge deal. And then on the way down from the canal, we are going to go check out the common Paraki, mm-hmm. as you have to do when you're at Astero. Absolutely. We ran into our friend from Coa Sporting Optics, Jeff Bowden, who is working on a, well, I mean, he's always doing this, working on a Coa scoping big year, yeah. um, where he's trying to take pictures using his phone and a spotting scope. You know, most people call it digibinning. But or digiscoping be- or but because phone scoping. Because it's with a Coa, he calls it Coa scoping. Um, so he's been working on a Coa scoping big year. Yeah. And he had just landed uh, after some flight delays and booked it over to Astero because, you know, Astero's awesome yeah. to add some things to his list. It, it was his first visit for the year down in the Rio Grande Valley. So he had all the, all the Valley specialties he needed to get for his, uh, for his life list or for his year list. And uh, I think he has a goal of a thousand species. Um, yeah. And he's over 700. Dang. So he's, he's getting there. He's, I think he had a couple more trips planned for the rest for the, before the end of the year, a couple more shows he was going to. So we wish him luck on getting there. We helped we helped him get his common paraki. Yeah. Um. It was it was difficult to see. So, so common paraki is it's a night jar. It's, yeah. I, I'm sure we've talked about this every time we talk about the Rio Grande Valley, but it's a gorgeous cryptic night jar that looks like a pile of snakes. A pile of <laughs> it looks like a pile of snakes with a tail sticking out. It's it's really cool looking. Um. And they roost day roost all day long and are very obliging to photos if you can find them. All you, all you have to do is find it in the brush, and then you can get photos of it all day long. And it doesn't make you, as long as you're like 15, 20 feet away from respectful. it. Respectful. Respectful. It won't bother it. It'll open up its eye. If it hears you, if you're talking too loud, it'll open up its eye and look at you. But then as soon as you're quiet again, it'll close its eye and pretend to be sleeping. But the, the one at uh, Estero on, on the alligator trail towards the alligator pond is, has been, there's been one there, I'm sure they've passed on and new ones have taken over, but it's in a really good location so much so that they, the Rangers set up a whole blockade of brush to ensure the photographers don't cross over into that area, um, to bother the Mm Parakis. But we found it, um, relatively quickly. Um, Jeff was able to get his, uh, photo for the year of the Paraki. And then we headed with him on out of there because it was hot 
and it was yeah. getting to the end of the day. And we, and we, we had a, a dinner to go to every, the first day of the festival, the day before the festival starts, they always hold this whole welcome, welcome reception, which is food and beer and presentation and music and, and all this cool stuff, especially for guides and participants to kind of mingle together. That's like the whole intent of this, this reception. And it's a lot of fun. So we had, we had to get over there to that. We did check for the blue bunting real quick. Didn't hear it. No, didn't, didn't see hear it. it. So yeah, but, but I, I think it was because there was that family like um, that you noted that were carrying those like three foot long dinosaurs. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think <laughs> they were doing like a family like family portraits and stuff, and the kids all had their dinosaurs and they're carrying them along. I think they were doing like uh, Jurassic Park sort of pictures. Oh, is that what, we're, we're, I didn't see him taking the photos, but they're acting scared. Uh, my, I don't. Well, I my, didn't. See my brontosaurus that. is getting me. I didn't see that, but that's what I assumed. I would have done oh, if that was well, yeah, the case. Obviously. Um, so yeah, then we got to the, you know, went back to the hotel and got ready. Went to the kickoff party, like Eric mentioned. There was, you know, appetizers there, barbecue sliders and mm-hmm. food and drinks. And when going through the food line, there was a gal that saw us <laughs> and said, "Like ah, celebrities," <laughs> which had me cracking up so hard. So thank you. <laughs> For whoever that was for feeding my ego, <laughs> making me feel worthwhile. Um, but as Eric mentioned, we have a meeting afterwards. And this is just something that I want to note about the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. It was the first festival that we ever guided at. Mm-hmm. And there's something that really sets apart this festival is that they have a guide meeting. And I know, um, you know, a couple of the festivals that we've been to since then, they have a guide meeting too. A lot of times it's on zoom because guides are coming in for different places and they don't necessarily want to make them come in specifically for that. Yeah. But I think it is such a great thing that they do because it sets expectations. It gives us an opportunity to meet each other, you know, and learn about each other a little bit. So it's more of a collaborative environment um at the whole festival it's respectful it's fun you know i i just i think there's nothing else like it that i've been to and i'm so glad that that was my introduction into (laughs) birding festivals was participating in something like this yeah and it's it's a great opportunity for we've all at that point all the guides have been assigned we've been told hey these are the five trips you're doing yeah or these are the five four trips or whatever you're doing this is the evening things you're doing this is this is your schedule for the week and then we can hash it out real quick. If and there's, there, it's a pretty significant number of guys. It's like forty guys or something like that, or fifty guys maybe. But um, we hash it all out. If anybody has any questions, overall, you can one last double check, um, and then an introduction. All the guys get to introduce each other. So those of us that are new, those of us that have been there for a while, it's just kind of all all get on the same page. And like Hannah said, set the expectations of. Lay down, lay down the rules one one last time right before the festival starts the next morning of you will do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. You will not do X, Y, and Z. And be, just be done. And then we move forward and have, have a great festival. And we, we get our our hats and shirts and stuff like that at that meeting too. So that identify us as, uh, as leaders for the, for the week. And I do want to give a shout out to our friend Justin. Yes. Who has taken over as field trip coordinator for the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. Normally, Mary uh, Gustafson mm-hmm. would host the festival or host the um, the kickoff, and was the the festival coordinator. As we mentioned a while ago, she died in the last year, which is such a tragedy, mm-hmm. you know, as as any death is, um, and is 
you know, it t hit a lot of people hard, but Justin has done a great job at stepping into that role. Mary was his mentor and, you know, just a really close friend with him. And so I'm so proud of him for the work that he did at this festival. You know, he did a great job at the, the meeting and everything, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad he continued all this on. Yeah. It was awesome. So yeah, thank, thank you, Justin, for inviting us. And then also thank you for doing such a great job keeping everybody in line and keeping us all organized. As well as everybody else at the festival, um, which oh, yeah. we will get into in our next episode. So. Yes, we have gone too long on this episode, or almost too long now. So we'll the rest of the fest will be our next episode. Well, thank you guys all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll learn something new. Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, or anywhere else you listen to us. If you would like to connect with us on the socials, you can follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram, our Facebook page at Hannah and Eric Go Birding, our Twitter at We Go Birding, our TikTok at Hannah and Eric Go Birding, um, email address is Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com, and our website, www.gobirdingpodcast.com. Tell us what you liked, tell us what you hated, and share us with your friends. Thank <laughs> you.